Well, I'm the last face you'll see before lunch. (laughs) Hope that doesn't ruin lunch for you. (laughs) It's a face for radio, I tell you. (laughs) The story's told of this Caribbean preacher who grew up on a little Caribbean island in a pretty faithful Christian Caribbean family. And he grew up and went away to university in New Mexico, Los Lobos. (laughs) And he loved it so much that he decided to make his home in Albuquerque. Lived in Albuquerque, got his first job, and not long after that, he met a nice woman from Albuquerque. And pretty soon they married and started a family. And before you knew it, he had kids, five, seven, nine years old, and he hadn't been home any of that time. It had been 10 years. So he decides he wants to take his family, a nice little New Mexico family, back to the Caribbean and introduce him to his family and introduce him to island and life as he grew up. And, of course, a big part of that was church. So he he takes him to church. And it's almost like an anthropological expedition. (laughs) Arrive in the church and they take their seats and people are milling around and talking. But then the service gets started. The back doors blow open. And in comes the choir rocking to steel pans, you know, and and singing and flowing robes. And his son, about nine at the time, looked at him and said, Dad, who are they? Are they angels? He says, no, son, that's the the choir. Choir gets up in the choir loft and they continue to sing. And pretty soon, these ladies walk into the church and they sit over into this special section off to the side, all dressed in white, nice hats, very dignified, grave ladies. A little boy looks at him and says, who is that? And he says, those are the mothers of the church, son. We go on in the service a little bit, and the little boy's just taking it all in. And, and pretty soon the preacher comes out, and it's time for the sermon. And he comes to the pulpit in a nice black flowing robe, just grand gestures and moving. And, and he comes to the pulpit in a Caribbean accent, and he says, welcome to the visitors. And he, and he begins by reading his text, and he takes his watch off his wrist, and he lays it on the pulpit, right, just so, presses it down. And the little boy says, Dad, what does this mean? His dad, without missing a beat, said, absolutely nothing, son. Absolutely nothing. (laughs) Don't want you to get discontent with the length of this sermon, all right? (laughs) You know, you, you can tell when you have East Coast visitors coming out west, right? Because like, you know, and pastors too, right? Because, you know, East Coast people think they just run the world, right? You know, isn't that true? Isn't that true? I mean, I I caught myself. It's true of me too. Grew up in North Carolina and I'm an Easterner and I'm trying to live that down. And and every once in a while it just slips out, right? So we're driving over this morning and uh, I say to Ryan, I said, man, what, what are we looking at? I'm looking up at the sky and he says, oh, that's fog. He says, that never happens here. (laughs) It's happening pretty good today, you know. (laughs) And and, and like a proper East Coastman and a a proper East Coast pastor, I took credit for it. I said, well, I have been praying rain for y'all, you know. (laughs) (laughs) 
But you guys have welcomed me anyway. I feel so at home. I, I especially felt right at home when you sang the Jefferson's theme song. <laughs> I, I, I got to tell you, that was special. I sent my wife an email. I said, you will not believe <laughs> what happened. <laughs> so I have another theme song for you. This one doesn't have words. It's a tune. I wonder if you know this one. Dun, 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 dun. You know that one? Yeah, Saffron and Son. Saffron and Son. Yet another character from a 1970s sitcom who all of a sudden shows up in my sermon. <laughs> You remember the, the main character played by comedian Red Fox, Fred, Fred's G. Sanford. And the G stands for everything from guacamole to, you know, gotta get rich, right? And you remember, he's a, he's a junk dealer. And, and as a junk dealer, he and his son Lamont, they, their occupation is collecting things, right? So Lamont drives all day, picking up stuff on the truck, working really hard. And, and Fred, a senior citizen, really, he's at home doing what he calls coordinating right, which is mostly sitting in his recliner watching television all day. And every once in a while, they get into a spat, and, and Lamont threatens to leave the business and to leave his dad and go out and strike on his own. And Fred will say something like this, you know, you're going to leave all of this? You know, <laughs> who will I give my empire to, you know? Here's a man who in his poverty loved things. You get the sense when you watch the show that it's not just about turning a profit. It's not just about running a good business. It's really about collecting. It's really about amassing. It's really about stockpiling possessions. In an interesting sort of way, he's a window onto the whole world. The world loves stuff. See, the very fact that you know what I mean when I say stuff <laughs> is an indication of our love affair with possessions. And, and, and as our brother just preached a moment ago, as he was closing his sermon, you know, he gave us those, those three reasons for, uh, our, our, for our lack of contentment sometimes. You remember what number one was in his, in his reasons? Living too close to the world. Loving the world and the things of the world. In fact, I think that's for many people including Christian people, a pretty good explanation of his second point or illustration of his second point. You remember what he said for lack of contentment? The besetting sins that we accept. <laughs> Materialism is respectable. Not only in the world, but very often in the local church. We don't seem to question it. We accept it. And it's often what contributes to his third his third reason, remember what that was? A neglect of God's word. How many of us are too busy getting stuff, working for stuff, playing with our stuff, that we seem to have very little time to play with God, to delight in him, to seek him in his word? So this sermon, wrestling with contentment and thinking about contentment in our possessions, in some ways is picking, picking up right off where our brother Rick left us. 
And I want to remind us of the definition of contentment that he gave us on yesterday. It came from Jeremiah Burroughs' classic Puritan work, um, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I hope you all have, have purchased that. It, is, it will repay slow, prayerful reading. Here's how Burroughs defines contentment. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every situation. And he goes on to say, not long after he gives us that definition, he goes on to say this, to be well skilled in the mystery of Christian contentment is the duty, glory, and excellence of a Christian. If you want to be an excellent Christian, if you want to enjoy the, the glories of being this exquisite creature called a Christian, and if you want to carry out our duty as Christians, he says, listen, we have to master the mystery of Christian contentment. And we can't do that unless we think carefully about what the Bible says about possessions and our hearts toward them. So what I want to do, rather than um, sort of take one text and expound one text, I want us to sort of gather a lot of the Bible's teaching under this topic to address this question um, topically. I want to ask four questions and hopefully give us four biblical answers. Number one, what is the connection between contentment and our personal possessions? What's the relationship between contentment and personal possessions? Question number two. How does the gospel produce Christian contentment? What is it about the dynamics, the inner working, the power of the gospel that, that produces in the one who believes this, this excellence, this glory called contentment? Number three then, what does gospel contentment with possessions look like? How do we know it when we see it? And number four, how then do we use our possessions to cultivate our contentment? How do we use possessions to cultivate contentment? And I pray as we consider this, the Lord would help us in our understanding and grant us light and liberty in Christ his Son. Well, the first question, what is the connection between contentment and our personal possessions? Let me give you the answer in a sentence and then let's chase it in the scriptures. Here's the answer. Either our possessions will keep us from contentment or personal contentment will change how we view our possessions. Either our possessions will keep us from contentment or our contentment would change our view and our use of possessions. Let's take those two halves. If, if our possessions keep us from personal contentment, then, be, beloved, the, the Bible word for that is idolatry. Our possessions have become idols. They have become false gods that rival our love for the one true God. The New Testament gives us such powerful illustrations of, of this happening in the lives of, of various people. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. It's a well-known passage. It's a passage involving the, the rich young ruler. 
you're using one of the Bibles that have been provided here, you'll find that on page 824. And, and seriously, <laughs> if you use one of the Bibles provided, page 824, and, and if you're new to the Bible, man, this, as Christians, this is what we delight in is to study the Bible. And we're going to be turning in the Bible a lot, so let me, if you're new to the Bible, let me just give you a tip. When I say chapter, that's the big number on the page. So we're going to Matthew chapter 19, big number. And when I say verse, that's the small number, verse 16, right? So we're in Matthew 19, beginning in verse 16. And here's an incident in the life of Jesus uh, involving a rich man, a young man. Now, a man came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, that's the money question, no <laughs> pun intended. That's the, that's the big, important question right there. What must I do to get eternal life? And, beloved, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian and you do not yet possess eternal life, if that is not among your possessions, Oh, can I just beg of you to zero in and listen with an unusual attentiveness to what happens in this, in this transaction? Verse 17. Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied? There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones, the man inquired. And Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. And you see, if you know your Bibles and you know what Jesus is doing there, he's quoting the second table of the commandments. Uh, those duties that we have to one another when God commands, right? Now, notice what the rich young ruler does. He says, all these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? It is dangerous to ask Jesus what you lack. <laughs> Verse 21, Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Here's this young guy. He's a rock star. He's made it in the world already. He's, he's young and he's amassed a fortune, apparently. And yet, he's still asking this question, now, what do I do to get that life that is eternal, that is full, that is beyond this life? He's asking the right questions. And Jesus now, when he addresses him in, verses, um, in verse 21 and says, go sell all your possessions, come, follow me, and you'll have treasure in heaven, he really, in some ways, is just summarizing now the first table of the law. You remember how the first commandments go. You know, love the Lord your God. It's summarized in the scripture. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And so Jesus now really is pointing out that there is a remarkable difference between moralism and Christianity. That moralism, doing good to neighbor, and Christianity are two entirely different religions. That, that if you're going to be a Christian, then what must be paramount is him, is God, is treasuring him and following him. And notice what, what happens. The rich man went away sad. He joined the ranks of all the other rich people who were discontent. It's striking. As a rich man, outwardly, he probably looked very content. 
But the suggesting, the suggestion of not having his possessions proved that inwardly he was discontent and an idolater, doesn't it? Jeremiah Burrow says this. To be content as a result of some external thing is like warming a man's clothes by a fire. But to be content through an inward disposition of the soul is like the warmth that a man's clothes have from the natural heat of his body. You see the difference? I, I, my brother, uh, who's going on to be with the Lord now, he was a different kind of dude, man. His name, we called him Gino. That was his nickname. And he never ironed his clothes. Drove my mother mad. He put on his clothes, and he get ready to go. My mother said, are you going to have the house looking like that? He's like, what? There's all those wrinkles. And he would, he would look at his clothes, and he smiled, and he says, the body heat will knock out the wrinkles. He <laughs> 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 was a different bird, man. I couldn't help but think of him when I read this Jeremiah Burroughs quote. What is Burroughs saying? That the really content man is content in his soul, in his heart. And, and from the city center of his heart, the suburbs of his life are warmed. The heat is here, and it emanates out. The contentment is here, and it spreads outward. But if you try to warm a man's heart with a fire from outside of him, rarely will it melt the ice at the center of his soul. Contentment's that way. If you try to sort of get all of the things from outside to, to satisfy the soul and to, to bring a contentment, well, you may find yourself strangely worn by those things for a season. But remove those things, and you'll discover, and I will discover, that at the seat of our soul has not been a fire, but a block of ice, an ice of dissatisfaction. Contentment, as Burroughs says, comes from an, an inward frame of the spirit. It is the satisfied heart that warms the, the outward soul. But if we worship our possessions, we will find that we won't be content long. There's another illustration in the scriptures. You remember also the rich fool? Luke chapter 12. Again, if you're using the Bibles that are provided here, you'll find that on page 871. Luke 12 also tells us of a man who has a lot of things but doesn't have true contentment. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. We'll read from verses 13 down to 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Verse 15 is worth committing to memory if you haven't already. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, hmm, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, 
be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The, the, the Bible is full of big buts. Verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? My mother, one of the greatest theologians I've ever known, she would paraphrase this way, this way you can't take it with you, baby. You can't take it with you. And that's what Jesus is saying. All this stuff you're storing up in bigger barns, what are you going to do when your soul is required of you? It won't satisfy you eternally. And the little satisfaction that this man assumes he had, so much, so much so that he speaks to his own soul. So can you see him reclining, just sort of surveying his great wealth? And, oh, this is, this is nice. You know what? I'd like to have some more of this. Isn't it striking that his barns are already full and yet he wants bigger barns? It's amazing how often discontent comes in the form of a desire for more. And this is this man. He wants, he wants more. He wants greater possessions. He wants bigger barns. He wants to eat, drink, and be merry. But <laughs> even though the world lives for this philosophy in verse 19, they almost always drop off the rest of the saying, for tomorrow we die. For tomorrow we die. He's like, a, he's like a, an unhappy infant who's really hungry. But, but is satisfied temporarily by the pacifier. Sucks on the pacifier of his possessions. But, but the hunger, the gnawing for contentment is still there. That's why he wants bigger barns. His possessions won't do it for him. And, and his possessions are keeping him from that greater contentment, which is contentment in God. And this is why God says, you fool. This is a foolish way to live, to try and satisfy your appetite with sugary snacks. When, as we heard a moment ago, I offer you this water, which will slake your thirst forever. And this is how it will be, verse 21, for anyone who lives this way. And here's the thing, babe, beloved, the, 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 the possessions. <laughs> you guys are quick, man. You got, you got, it's a well-taught congregation, right? They, they, they're listening, the beloved. <laughs> the, the possessions that we amass can keep us from contentment in God, even religious people. Even with religious people. So turn just about two pages over to Luke chapter 16, verses 13 to 15. There, Jesus is in an interaction with the Pharisees, the most religious people of his day. And, and he lays down a principle in verse 13 that you will, you will know, no doubt. No servant can serve two masters. 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. This is a spiritual impossibility. You cannot serve God and serve possessions or serve money, right? Notice what's said about the religious folks in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. They ridiculed him. Because they love money. And this shows up in Christian lives, doesn't it? Tell someone something like you're thinking about emptying your life savings and giving it to reach the unreached people groups in the world. And immediately, they will begin to tell you how crazy you are for doing that. To ridicule you to suggest you're not wise, to suggest that that's foolish. Rarely will you find a Christian who says, man, you are laying up treasures in heaven. The Pharisees were those religious folks who ridiculed Jesus. Now notice in verse 15, Jesus said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. That is a stunning statement. We can actually value what God detests. And the world does it all the time. And this is why a love for possessions keeps us from contentment in God. Contentment is fundamentally an issue of love. Do we, as John the Apostle says in 1 John 2, love God? Or love the world. And those are irreconcilable. And that's why Jesus says in another place in the gospel, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And why he says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? You see the value that Jesus places on our souls. That there's nothing in the world that we can give in exchange for our soul. Nothing that equals the value of your soul, beloved. And the world's full of people just collecting things and and trying to get their arms around things and and tottering under the weight of the things they're collecting. And when Christ offers himself to them, they have nothing with which to grab him. Their hands are full. And Jesus says, if you would but do this and drop what you're holding and grab hold of me, You'll have everything. Everything. I love that word which says, he who has everything in Christ has no more than the man who has Christ alone. See, our possessions will sometimes keep us from contentment or our personal contentment will change how we view and use our possessions. And again, there are plenty of examples of this running through the New Testament. 
where the radical change of conversion to faith in Christ changes how the converted view and use their possessions. Rick mentioned a moment ago Zacchaeus. You're in Luke 16. Turn over a page or two to Luke chapter 19. You see the, you see the account there in verses 1 to 10. And those of us who perhaps grew up in, in Sunday school, we, we know this story, don't we? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. <laughs> I, I love it, I love it, I love it. Climbs up in the sycamore tree, right? For Jesus he wanted to see, yeah? And so Zacchaeus is up in this tree. Jesus is coming by, verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. It's funny how people hear things. There's a little fellow in my church. Uh, we have a lot of European uh, folks who live there. He's British. And he's singing a little song, and he's recounting the story in his Sunday school group. And he said, you know, we, the teacher asked the question, well, what, what did Jesus say to Zacchaeus? He says, uh, come down, because we've got to go to your house and have tea today. You know? <laughs> so... <laughs> So verse 6, Zacchaeus comes down the tree, welcomes Jesus gladly. Notice now in verse 7, the religious people again, they start to murmur, right? They're not happy that Jesus is spending his time. They say, listen, at the end of verse 7, with a man who is a sinner. But now look at what happens to Zacchaeus in verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Here, here's a man who is so changed by this visitation with Christ that he gives up half of his possessions and he brings forth evidence of his repentance by restoring fourfold what he has stolen from others via his role as tax collector. Now notice verse 9, Jesus' response. And Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And beloved, all of us before we knew Christ, we needed to be sought after. For we were lost and did not know the way. And the Father sent his Son into the world to come and to seek and to save you, to seek you, to look for you intentionally, purposefully, to, to find you, to find you and to rescue you from your slavery to sin, to make you his own. And when he does that, there's something that is unlocked in the heart. We're freed from our love for the world. And it changes how we view and use the things of the world. And Zacchaeus is an example of that. I want to suggest to you that in this moment, Zacchaeus not only found the salvation of God, but in that salvation found also the gift of contentment. And what does it look like? He gave it away. We see the same thing. We're staying in Luke's gospel. Look over in Luke chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. This wonderful story. You know, one of the reasons I love Luke's gospel is because Luke really admires women. And very often the heroes in his gospel are the disenfranchised women. And here's one such account. Luke chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. Look there with me. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. 
I said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Randy Alcorn, in his great book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, I commend it to you if you've not read it. He talks about this passage, and he says, after verse 2, he says, Now stop now. You see this poor widow put two mites into the offering. If she had come to you and said, I only have these two coins, what should I do with them? How would you have advised her? Go ahead, think about that. How would you have advised her? And so I stopped reading the book as Alcorn suggested, and I thought about that, and maybe your answer was a little bit like mine. Well, sweetie, those two coins are all you have. And maybe God gave you those two coins so you could buy that next loaf of bread. You meet some need. You need those two coins. Don't raise your hands, but how many would have said something along those lines? Look at what Jesus does in verse 3, 3 and 4. She puts her, her coins in, and he says, I'll tell you the truth, she's given more than all of these rich folks. She has given all that she had. And he commends this woman. And he memorializes this woman in Scripture so that for 2,000 years his people are learning this woman and how in her contentment with God she gave all that she had because she was satisfied in her worship of God. She was empowered to be free from discontentment. Let me give you one other example. For this is not just isolated happenings in the New Testament, but if you'll turn over with me to Luke chapter 2, page 911, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll see that this really was the habit of the early church. That, that when revival broke out at Pentecost in Luke chapter 2, and the church is assembled for the first time and begins to live out this, this new covenant relationship with God, when that revival breaks out, see how it See how contentment frees them to view their possessions differently. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, excuse me, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. Verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Look over in in Acts chapter 4, just turning the page over there, Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 35. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, notice, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. How many of you know that's a move of the Holy Spirit? That's supernatural. Because most Christians are, if we're honest, we we can be a lot like those seagulls in Finding Nemo. (laughs) Mine, 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 mine. Yeah, you remember those guys? Now, it says something about me that they were my favorite characters in the movie. (laughs) I'll leave you to speculate as to what it says about me, but you know. We, We can struggle with selfishness, can't we? 
Notice here, they, they sold, they didn't claim that any of their possessions were their own, but they, they shared with everyone. They had everything in common, verse 33, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. I think that's a beautiful vision of the local church. To be a congregation of people so content with God so in awe of God, so, so, so deeply rejoicing in his grace, so treasuring the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and the world to come, that we would let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also, that we would sell our possessions and share in such a way that nobody has any need. That's glorious. That's glorious. And see, when we find our contentment in God, we will use our possessions differently. But if we think our possessions are what will bring us contentment, it will hinder our walk with God. But it's the gospel that makes the difference. And that brings us to our second question. How does the gospel produce this Christian contentment? Well, answer, the gospel frees us from being possessed by the world so we may then properly possess the world itself in worship. The gospel frees us from being possessed by the world so that we may now, as heirs of Christ, possess the world and use it in our worship of our Lord. Again, let's just see how the gospel does this. Let me give you sort of three things that I think emerge as a pattern in the New Testament, and then I want to show it to us in the scripture from a couple of places. So let me give you sort of the three steps, if you will, and then we'll chase the pattern in the scripture. First, the gospel crushes the old idols and turns us to the true God. It's the first thing the gospel does. It comes into our life and we believe it savingly. It crushes the idols and turns us to God. The second thing it does, in, in turning us to God as our source and our joy, the gospel allows us to enjoy his creation properly. It doesn't, it doesn't destroy our enjoyment of God's creation. It, it rather resituates it so that our enjoyment is proper and an act of worship. Third, this proper possession and enjoyment of God's gifts they actually contribute to our assurance and our contentment. In other words, if having been turned from idols to God and having discovered there the, the gifts of God given to us, if we use those gifts in accord with God's word, they actually affirm that we belong to God and they strengthen our contentment in God. And let's see this in a couple of examples. Acts chapter 14 they're already there in Acts. Turn over to your right there, about three or four pages. Or scroll to the next chapter. 
Acts chapter 14, verses 15 to 17. Let me give you a little context there. Paul and Barnabas have been mistaken for Greek gods. And the people have come out now to worship them. And Paul speaks to the crowds, and, and, and he makes an argument here now. And, and notice how Paul's argument tells us that the gospel produces right enjoyment of God's creation. So, verse 15. Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men human like you. We're bringing you good news. That's the gospel, right? We're bringing you this good news. Verse 16. I'm sorry, I lost my spot there. Verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of, of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. That's the gospel. Now notice that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Paul is saying here that the gospel turns us from the creation to the creator, from the idols that we attempted to worship to the one true God who has made all things. That's how it crushes idols and reorients us. Now, verse 16. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Verse 17. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good, by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. You see what he's saying there? This God who owns all creation, he uses his creation to bless people, to bless his people. And, and so that our hearts, if they're rightly attuned to God, actually rejoice in God's goodness to us. But now there's a, there's a third thing here, a third step that I mentioned a moment ago. Not only does the gospel free us to, to know God properly and free us to enjoy then his blessings in creation, but it becomes a way of gaining full assurance of our salvation and, and deepening our contentment. Now to see this, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. More teaching from the Apostle Paul. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. Paul ends there some instructions with some instructions having to do with possessions. You'll find it on page 994. Here's what the apostle writes there. It says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That's, a, that's a, a, a sort of didactic way of stating what we just saw in the historical passage in Acts. Set your hope on God, who's the creator of all things, not on riches. And the same God who's the creator of all things, he, he richly provides us these things for our enjoyment. Now notice verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. In other words, the proper use and enjoyment of God's gifts is good deeds and sharing. Notice how if we use God's blessings in the promotion of good deeds and the blessings of others, it leads to the assurance of salvation and evidence of our contentment. Verse 19. Thus or as the NIV puts it, in this way. By using God's blessings in this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves 
as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. That's the NIV. The ESV puts it this way. Thus, storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. In other words, if having now been set free from worshiping the creation to worship the creator and having now discovered that this same creator has every good thing for us in Christ. And we use those good things now for the promotion of good deeds and the, and the blessing of others. The consequence of that is we're actually storing up treasure in heaven. We're actually laying a foundation in the age to come. We're receiving by that action assurance of our salvation. And anyone whose treasure is in heaven is also someone who's content in the world. Proper use of God's gifts leads to our contentment. We use our possessions as God prescribes. We're going to find ourselves satisfied in God. And this is how the gospel, the dynamic of the gospel, which turns us from idols to God, leads to our contentment in that very same God and the proper use of possessions. Which brings us to our third question. What does this contentment look like? Well, you've probably already seen it in what we saw in Acts 2 and in other places. It looks like radical generosity. A man who's free from his possessions is free to give his possessions. He's he's free. It, It is to understand Acts chapter 20, verse 35. You know these words of our Lord recorded only here in Acts. It is more blessed, what? To give than to what? Receive. You can only say that happily if you're a contented person. I say that to my seven-year-old. He looks at me like I got three heads. <laughs> what are you talking about, man? I saw a new Skylander figure that I want to get for my, my Wii game. You know, it'd be great to receive that. Why don't you give it to me? You know. <laughs> <laughs> This is distinctively Christian thinking. It is more more blessed to give than to receive. Giving is better than getting. Blessing is better than begging. Our self-worth is not determined by our net worth. A balanced life is not accomplished by a balanced sheet. It's strange, but in in God's ways, in God's way of running his universe, in his economy, the more you give, the better off you are. And the people who discover the secret of giving are the people who have the deepest contentment, the deepest happiness. The more radically generous we are, the more content we become. And why is that? It's usually because we have discovered the promises of God to bless us more greatly than any of our possessions. We've discovered that God's promises are so rich to us are so great to us, so long-lasting and so much more satisfying than our possessions that we give our possessions in order to have this better promise, which comes from God. Again, that that way of thinking just runs throughout the Bible. Let me me read off a few to you. You can write them down and look them up later if you want. But Malachi 3.10. Many of you will know this passage. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. 
and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and, and pour out so much blessing that you'll not have room enough for it. Matthew 19, 29, where the Lord Jesus says there, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake, everyone who's embraced the cost of discipleship and gave it all up, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Luke 6, 38, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Romans 8, 32, sweet verse. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? You see the dynamic there? Christ has been given to us. God did not spare his son, but gave him to us freely. So now, having given us his son, we're left to ask this question. How will he not give us everything else? How will he hold anything back from us, having given us his son? Let me give everything else away that I might have Jesus. Just give me Jesus. See, gospel contentment looks like radical generosity because it takes seriously the far better promises of God to bless us in the perfect way that God blesses his people. Now, let me hasten to add a warning because the scripture is full of warning here. It is corrupt thinking to think that godliness leads to riches. And this is what Paul tells us, 1 Timothy 6, 5. Men of corrupt minds who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. (laughs) Boy, can you think of a better description of all the prosperity gospels that are around us? So when I assure you of God's blessings and God's promises, I am not encouraging you to think in some manipulative way that God's a genie. Let me put a coin in, pull the switch, and I'm going to get a hundredfold. Well, he will bless you for your generosity. But this is not the prosperity gospel. The desire, the Bible tells us, to be rich to possess many things, to have a lot of money, it leads to self-destruction. 1 Timothy 6, right there in that same passage, verses 9 and 10. Paul writes there, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That's a strong warning that our motive is to possess God, not what God gives. That's the contentment that I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about the discontentment masquerading itself as contentment by saying, no, I I would love to have God because because God's going to give me all of this. That's false teaching, beloved. 
And beloved, there are all kinds of prosperity gospels. They're the kinds we see on some Christian television stations. Send me a dollar, God will give you a hundred dollars. But there are also the prosperity gospels of a more middle class, mainstream type. If I just do good, God owes me blessing. He owes me the house. He owes me the spouse. He, he, he owes me the job promotion. Because after all, I'm, I'm a pretty good fellow. It's simply a milder form of the prosperity gospel. God owes us nothing. That he blesses us at all is a sheer act of his grace, of his kindness. That he promises us more than we ever give away. It's just his beneficence, his largeness of heart toward the undeserving. No, contentment is wanting God for himself and then discovering when he gives us things, we can use it to have more of God for himself, to give it away and to employ it in good deeds. That's what we're talking about in the scripture. And it's a dilemma, and this is why we are wrestling for contentment when it comes to our possessions, because we we have a God who has promised to bless us, and we have these warnings against chasing after riches, and and we're we're, we're seeking this God, and we're longing after this God, and we're, we're worshiping God with outstretched hands and open hearts, and and we see these things coming down from God. And in our frailty, it's so easy to go, ooh, shiny. (laughs) Take our eyes off God and play with the fool's goal of this world. In the Cayman Islands, one of the things the Cayman Islands is famous for, it's famous for a lot of things, some of which we, you know, are happy about, some of which we aren't. Famous for world-class diving, you know, it's beautiful beaches. Famous for just a warm, hospitable people. It's famous for a tourist trap called hell. You know, it's got these stalagmites or stalactites, whichever one they are, that, that grow up out of the ground, these sort of volcanic intrusions that, that really they do, if you, if you would imagine, you know, sort of Dante's Inferno or something. It looks like hell. People send postcards from hell, you know, there. Famous for that. Famous for chickens. All over the island are these wild chickens that just run around and just do their thing. And and I don't care what happens. A a hurricane comes, and this is how you can know the storm is coming. The chickens disappear. (laughs) You wonder, where did the chickens go? Storm comes, blows through, the next day chickens come out. (laughs) And the thing about a chicken is it'll peck at anything shiny. And you just see them pecking, pecking, digging. And, and beloved, I don't, I don't mean this cruelly, but, but can't our churches be full of Christian chickens? Pecking at every little shiny thing, chasing after every little bauble the world offers up. It's not contentment. It's not contentment with our possessions. Well, there's something deeper. I want to end on just three practical things here in answer to the question, How can we use our possessions to cultivate contentment? James Moffat said, A man's treatment of money is the most decisive test of his character, how he makes it and how he spends it. You want to know what a man is like, a woman is like, a child is like? See how they handle their possessions. 
And let me suggest three things in the handling of our possessions as we close here. That we need to, number one, clean our hearts of idols. Number two, clean our houses of injustice. Number three, clean our churches of needs. Clean our hearts of idols. We saw that in 1 Timothy 6, 17. Put your hope in God. Remember what Paul says there? Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. This wrestling for contentment with our possessions requires a relentless and a constant reorienting our hope in God. Because the deception of our possessions is always, come, trust me. Your money always whispers, come, I'll take care of you. Your house always says to you or suggests to you, you'll be comfortable here. You know, our possessions speak to us. And they say to us, hope in me. But if we would rid our hearts of idols, we must keep hoping in God. We must keep trusting God's promise to, to be with us. Hebrews 13, 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Isn't that remarkably freeing? I, I don't have to love money or, or put my hope in money because i got a God who's omnipotent and owns cattle on a thousand hills and he has said to me, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Oh, soul, grab it by the collar. Hope in God. Hope in God. And pray for contentment. That's how we cleanse our hearts of idols. The prayer of Proverbs 30, give me neither poverty nor riches. My daily bread. It's the same prayer or idea that Jesus picks up in Matthew 6, 11 when he's teaching the disciples to pray. Pray, give us this day our daily bread. What we should be content with. So that we might know the secret that Paul learned in Philippians 4, 11 and 13. How to be content in every situation. Whether fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So that we can rightly say with Paul, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You realize that, that that's often quoted. I, I remember watching, I used to be a boxing fan, watching Evander Holyfield and Mike Tyson uh, in one of their bouts. And Holyfield comes out, the Christian, he's got some gospel anthem playing. And on his robe is Philippians 4 thing. I, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul wasn't thinking about knocking out Mike Tyson. <laughs> and that's why he got his ear bit off. Paul was thinking about contentment. When he says, I can do all things, he was thinking about being hungry. He was thinking about being naked. He was thinking about being in distress and being satisfied in all those things, in those deprivations. Or, or being fed and, and being clothed and, and having plenty and being satisfied despite the plenty. This is how Jeremiah Burroughs puts it. He says, a Christian comes to contentment not so much by way of addition as by way of subtraction. And he goes on to explain. Contentment does not come by adding to what you want, but by subtracting from your desires. It is all one to a Christian whether I get up to what I would have or get my desires down to what I have already attained. My wealth is the same. 
For it is as fitting for me to bring my desire down to my circumstances as it is to raise up my circumstances to my desire. The contentment comes by subtraction. It's counterintuitive. And he goes on to say this. If the heart of a man is fashioned to his circumstances, he may have as much contentment as if his circumstances were fashioned to his heart. This is the art of contentment. Not to seek to add to our circumstances, but to subtract from our desires. Selah. Not to seek to add to our circumstances, but to subtract from our desires. We want to clean our hearts of idols. We want to clean our houses of injustice. Let me just refer back to Zacchaeus there. You see what that man recognized? He had defrauded people out of their money. And you see what what the gospel brought for? The kind of repentance that restored what he had taken and went beyond that and gave to the needy. Will a man rob God? It's the question that Malachi asks. We cleanse our house of injustice not only toward our neighbors, but, but toward God when it comes to the use of our possessions. The question isn't, how much should I give? The question is, how much should I keep? It all belongs to him. It's all his. And what has he allowed us as stewards? To keep what we need. For that's what he's promised, is to supply our needs. And the rest is meant to be used for good deeds and the advancement of the gospel. Cleaning our houses of injustice. Finally, cleaning our churches of needs. Let me just refer us back to Acts 2 and Acts 4. And that vision there where God's people took their possessions, sold them, and gave to such an extent that there were no needs in the church. In the West in particular, there is enough possessions in our houses, in our pocketbooks, in our bank accounts to live out these New Testament realities. The question is, do our possessions possess us or does Christ possess us? The question is, will we use our possessions for our own contentment and the blessing of others or will we be used by our possessions and drawn away from contentment in God? Put your hope in God. Put your possessions in his hands and you and I will know the secret of contentment. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, it is a indescribable kindness. Father, that you would give Christ your son for sinners such as we. And not only that, but that you would give us everything we need for life and godliness in Christ. You would bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That you would withhold no good thing from us. That you would promise and commit yourself to meet our needs if we would seek your kingdom and your righteousness. Here's one thing we can say about you, Lord. You are generous in all of your ways. And because we wish to be like you, 
Make us generous in all of our ways. Grant, O Lord, that we should not have our possessions interrupt our communion with you, but rather that we would be so content in you, it would change our view of our possessions and that we would use them to store up treasure in heaven, to bless your people, to advance your gospel and your glory. Give us this contentment, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.